You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Welcome to a new edition of Beats Podcast. Beginning with this session, we introduce a new factor, a change of title, and also something that I'll share in a second. Uh, the title has been Beats Podcast. We're changing it now to simply Bead, subtitled uh, The History, History for the Church. The big factor that we're changing is that I'm not going to be the only uh, speaker, the only host, but I'm going to be joined by one of my colleagues at Southern, uh, Dr. Michael Pullman. Uh, Dr. Pullman is uh, chair of the Department uh, of uh, Preaching and teaches in the area of Christian preaching, but he did his PhD under uh, Dr. Greg Wills, who is now at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, on evangelical church history uh, as it dealt with the issue of media, radio particularly, in America in the early part of the 20th century. Um, he has a BA from the University of Washington, MDiv from Western Seminary, and uh, his PhD then was uh, from us at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So uh, welcome, Michael. Uh, and uh, so we have two Michaels and uh, we'll be carrying on a conversation about various issues and figures in the history of the church. Uh, today, it'll be the Venerable Bede. Well, Michael, I'm just thrilled to be with you. I'm grateful that you've pulled me into this, uh, having a conversation with you every week about church history uh, and seeing its relevance for the church. I mean, we share a passion for church history and we are two of these crazy guys that actually think it's really relevant for today. And it's really helpful for faithful ministry in our day. So I'm thrilled to be a part of this. Thank you for letting me come on and, and be your sidekick. That's what I plan to do. And you're right, as we're calling it bead, uh, we thought, why not start? I mean, this this time together uh, as we reset this, this program by focusing on bead, the venerable bead. And I thought to myself, Michael, as we were preparing for, for this uh, program, if we think of our audience, I, I would ask, we could put it this way. If we were to ask our audience who the father of English history is, what name do you think would come to mind for them? Uh, and if we were to ask them what they thought the greatest work of English church history was, I wonder what title they would give. Now, for many evangelicals, I wonder if you agree, the name Bede and his ecclesiastical history of the English peoples, his great work, would probably not immediately jump to the top, uh, but they should. I think you both, uh, both you and I agree that they, they should. The Venerable Bede was an eighth century English monk. I mean, we're talking about a monk tonight, uh, serving in a monastery in an obscure region in Northeast England, far away from the center of the church in Rome. And not only did his ecclesiastical history represent a height of scholarship not equaled for centuries to come, but Bede also wrote, people don't know this, biblical commentaries, translations of the Latin and Greek works of the church fathers, the gospel of John into the old English, the apostles creed, the Lord's prayer. He wanted all these works 
to be in the vernacular, a magisterial single-volume Bible in Latin, and many other works of scholarship, both biblical and historical. Now, he popularized, people don't know this, the practice of dating forward from the birth of Christ. He even invented footnotes. Don't you love that? I mean, no end notes, footnotes. Uh, was made a doctor of the church, and finally Dante put him in paradise. That's quite a compliment for Bede. So I thought we could talk about tonight, as we prepared for this, why is Bede so remarkable? And why should we today care about a monk? What do you think, Michael? Is, is he relevant for our day? Yeah, I, th- I think he's very relevant <clears throat> in a number of ways. Um he kind of sums up the early church period. Uh, a lot of um, scholars, when they come to date the history of the church, uh, well, create eras and periods in the history of the church, they, they basically kind of use Bede as a marker for the end of the patristic period. And uh, in some ways, Bede is the last of the church fathers. He is um, in continuity with the way in which the early church fathers Uh, read scripture. Um, He's committed to biblical orthodoxy in terms of the doctrines of the Trinity, Christology, and he also is very Augustinian. Um, I had a PhD student do a a study of Bede's view of divine grace and his anti-Pelagianism. Pelagius was, you know, right from his own backyard. He was British, and so this was a real problem in Britain, and Bede is a very strong uh, upholder of uh, the sovereignty of God's grace in conversion and in the Christian life. So in many ways, then, he kind of sums up the patristic period, and he's a conduit uh, for the medieval world. Um, you, the way you began uh, talking about Bede, you know, the, he's the father of English history, he's the, the author of this remarkable work, The Ecclesiastical History of the English Peoples. Um, if, if, let's say we were doing this podcast in uh, 1300, you wouldn't have begun that way. Uh, mm-hmm. You would have begun by talking about Bede as the great biblical commentator. That's what everybody knew him as. You know, biblical commentaries on numerous parts of the New Testament. And I think he's the first person to write a biblical commentary on Mark. I could be wrong on that, but he definitely did write one on Mark. And I am uh, amazed at, at, as to your point, Michael, the output, I mean, nearly 40 books. Mm-hmm. most of which are biblical commentaries. He spent, he's known for his works in history, and he should be, but it, disproportionately, he was a man of the Bible and spent the lion's share of his scholarly activity doing biblical commentary work. Yeah, so <clears throat> we, we remember him as the father of English history, but the mm-hmm. medieval period, beginning with you know the 700s and running through to about 1500, remembered him as this great biblical commentator. Um, and uh, sadly, uh, most of his biblical, well, a good part of his biblical commentary is not available uh, in English. It's still in Latin. And um, with, the, with the Reformation, Bede as a biblical commentator kind of falls out of favor. Well, there's some future work uh, for you, right? There's some writing projects. <laughs> Do some translation work from the Latin into the mm-hmm. English so we can appreciate Bede all the more. Well, Michael, what dates are we talking about? Let's place for our, for our listeners uh, I mean, born 673, and he lived about how long? I mean, he... Well, he dies in 735, so he's in okay. his, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's roughly 60, 70. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very momentous period. I mean, it's that period that sees Islam sweep across North Africa. That's right. Um, 
by the time that he is in his uh, 20s and 30s, uh, Islam has taken all of North Africa, has crossed the Straits of Gibraltar, uh, Muslims, <clears throat> and is in proceeding to conquer uh, the Roman, the old Roman province of Hispania, which had been governed after the fall of the Western Roman Empire by the Visigoths. And the Goths, had, uh, sorry, the Muslims had even crossed the Pyrenees into France, what we call France, and uh, were only beaten back at the Battle of Tours by Charles Martel. And all this is taking place in his lifetime. Um, a very momentous world events. But Bede himself is, he, he's aware of Islam, very much so, but he's, he's very untouched. He's living a life really of scholarly seclusion in many ways. In, in a monastery. In a monastery. Yep. And this is before mm -hmm. the advent of the Vikings. So the Vikings have yet to start their pillaging and rampaging all through Europe. And uh, he, he, he basically antedates that by about 100 years. So he's, he's in a really remarkably favored position of peace, a, well, a significant amount of peace, at least in the, the, the area where he lives, which is Northumbria, one of mm -hmm. the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of, of England, and um, has access to the monastery library. Um, which is quite there. a library. I mm -hmm. mean for his time, it was a remarkable library. Uh, and, and, and think about this, a lot of our listeners might think he was cloistered. I mean, which of course he was, he's in a monastery. Uh, but he was amazingly, I think for the time, aware, as you said a moment ago, of what was going on globally. And of course he writes this uh, uh, authoritative history of, of the English speaking people as far as the conversion to Christianity. But talk about this library, if you could. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at what he had access to uh, in the volumes. I mean, about 250, 300 volumes. Is that, is that a fair yeah, estimate? Yeah, probably. Um, now there had been contacts between um, the uh, churches in um, Northumbria and those on the continent uh, in Gaul, that is France, and then even further South into Italy. And um, there had been a mission uh, in the five nineties sent mm -hmm. by Gregory the Great to England. Um, the story, and it's Bede who we get the story from. Bede, but one of the other things about Bede is he's a great storyteller. He is, I, yes. Uh, and he knows, he knows that history, to, to be memorable, has to be embedded in stories. Mm -hmm. So he tells the one mm -hmm. story about Gregory the Great. He really likes Gregory. Yes. And um, Gregory was in the market in Rome in somewhere in the 590s and he sees some guys blonde hair blue eyes and he's really taken with just how handsome these young men are they're slaves and he That's says right. to somebody like who are these people well let's make them monks oh. yeah he says oh they're the <laughs> angli and he says oh well they're very well named because they all look like angels and uh, that you remember, you know, he's a he's an Italian, uh, southern, you know, kind of um, skin color, a hair color. Would have been like me, you know. I, you, you can't see me, but or you could see me, you know, thirty years ago, black hair, brown eyes. Uh, I tan like that. I go out in the sun because of a Kurdish father, you know, Mediterranean kind of skin. And so mm -hmm. these guys, blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, they're really quite striking. And so he. He then asks if, if, if they have the gospel there, or they don't. 
So he d- devises this mission to, 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 to England, where the Anglo-Saxons were. Enlists a different Augustine. Yeah, so he this. sends uh, the man who we call Augustine of Canterbury. And um, he, he's a whiner. <laughs> we, we have some of his letters. And he's, he's crossing Gaul and he's whining all the time about how bad it is and, you know, the travel's arduous and the mission's going to fail. And, and, uh, but eventually he keeps going. He gets to Kent. What becomes Yes, Kent. and it does anything but fail. Going, yeah. it, it does not fail. Yeah. And so, so these, these links were established. And so uh, monks would go back and forth between Britain and the continent and bring books back from um, uh, from uh, from Rome and even further afield because they had links to Constantinople. And thus the library then that uh, Beat has access to is built up. It's really, as you say, it's quite remarkable. Well, just for the time and people would hear, I mean, about 250, maybe 300 volumes. And I mean, my our libraries uh, dwarf that probably. Uh, but at the time, I mean, if you if you fast forward, uh, what is it? The the um, I'm trying to think of the the library in uh, oh at Cambridge, the the Common Library. I forget what it's called, but in about thirteen hundred, I mean, it it had three hundred and thirty volumes at its peak. So here we are back in the seven hundreds, maybe a little earlier than that, and Bede has access to two hundred fifty to three hundred volumes. So it's very common to have smaller libraries, but he had access to all the fathers. He had access, of course, Eusebius, everything he needed uh, to give an authoritative account of what was going on. But, but Michael, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this because now we're moving into a little bit of his, his actual work of history. And you, as one of my favorite historians, he not only had those sources, those written sources at his disposal, but Bede is actually known for doing oral history as well. There, there, there's something there in terms of, of what he was doing to write his history. Yeah, so he's obviously had access to, uh, well, especially in Northumbria, would have had access to people who would have been uh, eyewitnesses of some of the events that he records. Mm-hmm. Um, the way in which the gospel came into Northumbria initially with a uh, Celtic mission uh, from mm-hmm. uh, the island of Iona. And uh, then uh, people being sent north from Kent, what becomes Kent anyway, uh, uh, this kind of for lack of a better word, Roman mission, we might call it. And uh, Bede would have been able to talk to eyewitnesses. It's quite clear that some of the events that he records were uh, garnered through oral conversation and kind of oral mm-hmm. interviews. And so he is, uh, he's been doing oral history. It seems, you know, oral history, it seems like uh, is, is, is more and more popular today. I mean, I, I don't know, in secular history as well as maybe um, uh, some church history, but Bede was doing this long before it was popular like it is today. I mean, he was uh, not only looking at the written sources, but talking to, to you know, firsthand witnesses of these things. Uh, well, and you mentioned that mission. The, another thing I know is you're passionate about, I love Gregory's you know, longing to send missionaries up to this, you know, north, um, northeast, well, well, we call it England, it wasn't England, yeah, it was northeast Britain, right, I guess, would that be proper to call it Britain, it wasn't England until the, well, 900s, you know, somewhere in the 900s, but England, 
Uh, but sending Augustine up there, uh, who became the, the Bishop of Canterbury and, and, uh, there was a King that they, in Kent that came to, to faith and, and then, you know, Bede wanting to chronicle how that, that movement of God made its way to Northumbria. And of course he's a beneficiary of that work, that missionary work in late 500s, uh, as he's about a century later, um, pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. Um, and what Bede wants to do in the, you know, his history of the English peoples is kind of record uh, what God has done for the Anglo- Anglo-Saxons. Mm-hmm. Um, these two people groups that originally came from probably Northwest Germany, uh, part of Holland, maybe, maybe uh, the area that just is right below Denmark, uh, an area called Jutland, where the Jutes came from. The Jutes, the three groups that come over to England in the, in the, um, the late 400s are the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. And uh, they established various kingdoms. Um, <clears throat> England uh, had been left uh, uh, really bereft of defense by, by the, the, the Roman legions who had left in the early 400s to defend the empire uh, because of the, the, the Rhine River had been breached, which was their, Western, their eastern frontier by various barbarian groups. And there were three major legions in Britain that left and never came back. And England was left to some degree defenseless. And it's mm-hmm. probably in this period that you get the, the stories of King Arthur. Who, if there's any okay. truth to King Arthur, he was a Romano-Celtic uh, kind of duke or leader of some sort. But um, eventually the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes are invited over initially to provide protection but they soon find out that England is just a beautiful place to settle down. And they, they decide they're going to take advantage of that. And they start bringing over a lot more people than the, um, the, uh, the British bargained for. And yeah. these are pagan empires, right? Pagan kingdoms. Yeah, and this is what's got Gregory's atten- attention. And, yeah, uh, these so are he- pagans. Yeah, because Britain had been evangelized and the gospel had been there. There'd been bishops there. There'd been churches there. Uh, we have the account, for instance, of Patrick's mission, uh, mm-hmm. St. Patrick, who had been sent to Ireland. So this is about um, probably about 50 to 60 years after the death of Patrick in Ireland. And he dies around 450, 460. And this is around 500. And what, what, uh, what happens over the course of the sixth century uh, is the, the evangelization of these various Anglo-Saxons in their various kingdoms, you know, Mercia, uh, Northumbria, Wessex, Kent, and mm-hmm. um, um, Bede wants to kind of uh, give a follow-up to Eusebius of Caesarea, his ecclesiastical history, the evangelization of the Roman Empire, or even going further back as a model Luke in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. As you read his ecclesiastical history, he sounds like Luke to me, and in a lot of the ways he opens up each <clears throat> of the books. I mean, you could, so that's an interesting connection you made. I, I, I almost hear, you know, Luke's language and just the way he talks uh, in his ecclesiastical history. But you had said earlier, Michael, I want to pick your brain on this, that, that he's a great storyteller. Bede is a great storyteller. What, what would you say is the overarching story in his ecclesiastical history? What's, what's the great theme? What's he trying to communicate in these five books, nearly 400 pages of history? 
Is yeah, there an I overarching think, theme? Yeah, I think I think the overarching narrative is that God God has purposes for the Anglo-Saxons and he is determined yeah. to bring them to faith in Christ and to plant his his church among them. And so is there a he, British exceptionalism here? Is there a, an English exceptionalism? No, I don't think <laughs> okay. so. Um, that's a very good question. I mean, oh. if, if you read 19th century writers, they love Bede because Bede, Bede is telling the story of how God moved among the English people and almost kind of set them apart as a covenanted Israel. But that's not- Like a Bede. city on a hill Yeah. before Winthrop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, same sort of. Yeah, so yeah, so Winthrop in America, you, 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 yeah. he probably has roots that go back um, to the way that they read Bede. Hmm. Um, I wonder. I've thought that as I was thinking of Bede. I mean, before Winthrop deemed the Massachusetts Bay Colony the city on a hill, I, I almost hear Bede in his ecclesiastical history saying, "We are God's city on a hill," and and he's going to you know set. The English people apart for the evangelization of the world. But yeah, I yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't yeah, I don't think Bede has that kind of exceptionalism that you okay. do find in later English writers. But I think he's what he's wanting to do for the Anglo-Saxons what Eusebius did for the early church, and then later mm. writers like Theodoret, uh, Sozomen, Socrates, Rufinus, you who, who continue the story of Eusebius, and then even before Eusebius, Luke this kind of mm -hmm. Greco-Roman model of historiography. Uh, I mean, Luke, at the beginning of his um, gospel, Luke 1, 1 through 4, kind of provides you with a historiographical uh, overview. You know, I, I, I've consulted those who are eyewitnesses of this, and I've set things in order, i.e. chronological order, and mm -hmm. uh, in order that you might know the things that have been accomplished among us. And Bede's got this kind of same, same idea. He's got, he's got a chronology he wants to pursue. That's right. um, he's got um, um, the, the main theme of the evangelization of the Anglo-Saxons and that the Anglo-Saxon people might know that God has moved among them and he's worked among them. He's got some th sub themes. I mean, one sub theme is sure. um, the Celts, the Celtic churches, that Patrick had established in Ireland that had then gone forth and evangelized Northern England and Scotland, uh, they're wrong on certain issues. And we kind of think this is very petty and I, I, I'm not sure I can be convinced it's not petty. Uh, Bede, Bede had a real bee in his bonnet. <clears throat> no pun intended with those, Bede's bee in his bonnet. Uh, Bede yeah. has a real bee in his bonnet about the fact that the Celts celebrated Easter differently from the way he did. Well, that's why in a lot of ways they aligned with Rome, right? Because of the dating of the East of Easter. Well, BB did, but the Celts didn't. Right. No, I know. And that's what, but that, and that, that bugged me. That bugged me to no end. It did. It did I know. And the, the only so problem was, is that beat when he looked at some of these Celtic guys, these Celtic Christians like Aiden, uh, they're just yeah. remarkable men and Coleman. Mm -hmm. And he's got a whole thing about Aiden. And he has high regard for Aiden, right? I mean, yeah, very much so. And Oswald, I mean, the king, did I get that? Yep. King Oswald. I mean, he 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 loves to hold up positive models, right? He doesn't spend a lot of time with with really bad kings and bad bishops, it seems, in his ecclesiastical no. history. It's it's almost like he wants to show <laughs> this is what a good king does, this is what a good bishop does. Model yourself after them. Or, 
Yeah, I mean that's another. Yeah, and that's just that's just classical Greco-Roman historiography yeah. for you. You've yeah. got why read history to to learn how to live. Models. Yeah, yep. models. Yep. Exactly. Yep. You know, uh, Hebrews thirteen. You see that. Yeah, and, and Bede's doing that. I mean, every historian's and his own editor, his or her own editor, and he's he's choosing who to highlight, who to accentuate, who to who to hold up as a model, and and they're usually positive examples. Right? Yeah, he does have some negative. Like one of the negatives is Wilfred of York, and he's he, he's he's got to be careful because Wilfred's alive at the time that Bede's writing. Yeah, and he doesn't like Wilfred. And there's a real, how do you know that? Well, because he says at one point, Aidan was such a godly man that when King Edwin of Northumbria uh, had been converted, uh, he, he wanted to help Aidan on his evangelism. So he said, well, I'll give you my horse. So he gives, he gives Aidan his horse, and then he finds the guy never uses it. He's actually given it away to some, somebody he met on the road. And Bede says this was this was because Aiden wouldn't wouldn't uh, kind of uh, portray himself as rich and powerful and as wealthy. Only the very wealthy had horses. Hmm. And then about oh about oh, 10, 15 chapters later, when he's talking about Wilfred, he said Wilfred always rode a horse. And he expects the reader <laughs> to remember. Now Aiden's a godly guy. He didn't ride horses. And all he says about Wilfred, he rode, he regularly rode a horse. And he's, he's a churchman. He's not a, he's not a king. He's not a noble. So he's aping the nobility. And it's a bit of a negative comment. So Beat can do some, you know, he can, he can say a few things like that. Now, the problem with Wilfred is Wilfred's the big guy who basically convinces the churches in Northumbria to embrace the Roman way of dating Easter. So Bede likes the Roman way of dating Easter, and he doesn't think the Celts are right, but he's not too pleased with Wilfred, even though he's the kind of the hero of the hour for the Roman churches. Anyway, it's it's com it is it, it there's a complexity there as well, which I think speaks to Bede's Bede's recognition of the nuances of history. Mm. So that leads me to ask you, Michael, can we trust him as a historian? Does he do good history? Yeah, I think he does. Um, a lot of, well, number one, a lot of our knowledge of the Anglo-Saxon world uh, in the sixth and seventh, well, the seventh and eighth centuries is, is drawn from Bede. <clears throat> uh, in addition to um, obviously archeological evidence. Um, but yeah, he is a faithful historian of his day. He, he's got his biases. Mm -hmm. And some of his miracle stories raise all kinds of questions. Well, and some of those miracle stories, they're, they're not really miracles. I mean, if you look closely, they might just be, I mean, things he's calling miracles that, that have natural explanations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, or just good timing. There you go. He does have some, like he's got one hero. I think it's Chad. St. Chad, who evangelized the uh, Mercian, uh, the kingdom of Mercia. And he talks about how Chad regularly in the winter used to stand up to his neck in a river and uh, pray the Psalter. And he suffered no harm. Well, <laughs> uh, I think he's, he might be stretching it a little. I don't know. I, maybe the guy was a real, you know, kind of an Iron Man. But anyway. <laughs> 
we don't know. Uh, well, Bede, you mentioned this too, Michael. I, I am amazed at how uh, a man of conviction, you're right. He And that kind of leads me to his letter to Egbert. Uh, or Egbert. Uh, this was a bishop. And for, and we didn't talk about this earlier, but but Bede never progressed, if you will, beyond being a priest, right? He didn't aspire to be a bishop. He didn't go on to, so he writes this letter, and this is kind of a good transition for us as we want to think about Bede for today. Uh, he writes this letter to about three months, maybe two before he dies, to Bishop Egbert. Really, it's an exhortation. It's, it, there's some hard words in there. So to your point, uh, Bede wasn't just... Uh, well, he just, let's put it this way. He wasn't afraid to give strong exhortations. Um, and he does that in his history, and he does that uh, in, in his letter to Egbert. Or Egbert. Uh, what, what is Bede's relevance for us today? I mean, we can see him as obviously an authority on, on history in that time period, and we, we love him for that. What do you make of his um, just ongoing relevance for us today? Well, I think, you know, I think of probably two, two areas as a historian. I think his, uh, we've mentioned it already, his ability to, to tell history as a storyteller. He's just yeah. a great storyteller. And you, you kind of, I don't know if you've seen the, the movie, uh, the, well, The Lord of the Rings, the second part of The Lord of the Rings, yeah. the Hall of mm -hmm. Theoden, when they go to the Roherim in Rohan, uh, that all is Anglo-Saxon. I mean, the hairstyles, I mean, Tolkien's drawing from his knowledge of Anglo-Saxon history. I mean, he was a professor of Anglo-Saxon literature. And mm -hmm. um, you, so you've got to picture this hall, like the hall of, of Rohan with King Theoden and this huge fire in the middle. And uh, how do you pass the winter nights? Well, you tell stories. And Bede, Bede has that, he's, he's brilliant. And I, I, I realized, that Bede is very helpful in doing history today, not, not academic history in the sense of okay. the academy, but in terms of the, the church, um, uh, that we have to be able to tell the stories of God's work and God's people. And Bede, Bede is really good at this. And I think the other thing that Bede helps me as a historian, he's a providentialist. He, uh, again, I, I don't write history yes. exactly the way Bede does it as a providentialist history, but for a, far too long in the academy, we have ignored what's the relationship between providence and history. And it, because focusing of, on secondary causes, just yeah, too much secondary causes. You're not looking at first cause, providential yeah. history. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And. Um, it, we, we, at some point, I think, in our academic writing, if we're Christian historians, we do have to put our cards on the table, and we do believe God's active in history. That's right. And Bede certainly did. I mean, oh, in a lot of ways, the, the, the grand narrative, I, I think, of, of his ecclesiastical history is God's you know, purpose for the universe and the English people's place in it. Yeah. Could that be one way to... Yeah. But, but, he, he's unabashedly doing providential history. I like this, Michael, to your point, the way he ends uh, book five, the last of the five books in his ecclesiastical history. He writes this, talking about the triumph of God in Britain. He says, quote, may the world rejoice under his eternal rule and Britain glory in his faith. Let the multitude of the isles be glad thereof 
and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Wow. The end. I mean, that's how he ends yeah. his, that's great. his history. So very much to your point, providential history uh, <clears throat> at its best. Well, one other thing I want to bring up, and we're, we're coming to the end of our time together, Michael. I, I don't like how brief this podcast is, but we're going we're gonna to do it. We're going to discipline ourselves to keep it uh, relatively brief. But uh, in the area where I teach, not only in church history, but in pastoral ministry, pastoral theology, and as we are here at Southern Training Pastors, I'm really uh, moved, uh, convicted, and encouraged by Bede's letter to Egbert. I mean, we've mentioned this before, but this this uh, bishop, and this is just before he dies, a couple months before he dies, he has this um, this extended letter that's an, really an exhortation to a bishop, and he's talking about themes that I know you know are really relevant today in evangelicalism in in the evangelical church. Let me give you just a flavor, a reminder for you and for our our listeners. Some of the things he's deeply concerned about in his day, so about 731, if I got my dates right, about 7, 730. Uh, it's in sections, and here's section three of the letter to this bishop, which again, to remind our, our, our listeners, this is a priest writing to a bishop, a very hard, some hard words, but he wasn't afraid to do it. He wasn't shrinking back from saying what he really felt he needed to say to one who was overseeing um, or, or, or being a shepherd. He says this in section three, above all, talking to the bishop, above all, I would like to persuade you, Holy Father, to restrain yourself as a worthy bishop from idle conversation, disparaging remarks, and other pollutions of an undisciplined tongue, and to devote your mind and your speech to the word of God and meditation on the scriptures. And that's a good wow. word for pastors today. Amen. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one other, well, actually two more, and uh, get your comment on this. He talks about not only how important it is that we study as pastors and, and, and give our minds to, to study, but also the company we keep. And that's, that's a, something that's always relevant. He says this uh, to the bishop, in order to preserve purity in word and work, the company of men who serve God with faithful devotion, as well as sacred study, are together an immense help. If at any time my tongue begins to speak impurely or evil acts creep in, I can avoid a fall by the help of devout companions. That's a good wow. word. Do we need devout companions today, Michael, or sure lest do. we fall? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, 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 that's well, excellent. We, I, it'd be it very is. interesting to look. I, I had, I, I was not, I, I've read that, but it's been many years. It'd be, it'd be very helpful to think about the whole area of friendship. Yep. Yep. It, I know it, that's an issue I've heard yeah. you speak to uh, yeah. with, with passion. And here's Bede back then saying, Oh, Bishop, lest you fall, surround yourself yeah. with godly people uh, uh, to protect you there. And he, and he goes on with some other things. He has hard words uh, for him as far as neglecting the sheep. Uh, he talks about even you're taking money. Uh, some you know bishops would take money and never visit some mm. of the sheep mm. and, and teach them the gospel and the, and the deep things of God. And yet they're required to give uh, to the bishopric. So, yeah. uh, and he goes on, beads not holding back. And maybe he senses his time on earth is, is short. And he leaves us in that letter. I think some of the things that are most dear to him. 
Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.